0: Well, it's so good to see so many familiar faces this morning and so many new faces. If I haven't met you, my name is Zach, and I have the great honor and privilege of being the lead pastor here at West Hill. And I would love to meet you at some point this morning. So find me in the parking lot as we celebrate and have a little bit of fun this afternoon. And I would love to introduce myself to you and hear a little bit about your story. Well, every day we face decisions which force us to to access our moral code. Will we show integrity with the petty cash at work? Will we keep our hearts faithful to our wife or to our husband? Will we look away when we have the opportunity to keep looking? Or will we answer questions honestly when our parents ask about where we've been? And will we tell the truth about why we are late? Our decisions are influenced by our morality. When a friend at work makes negative comments about another employee of a different ethnicity. Or when you find out that you're pregnant and you can't possibly imagine telling your parents or actually having a baby. Or when you realize that... Uh, you are attracted to someone of the same sex and you don't know what to do with those feelings, your morality will influence your decision every single time. And so today we're going to have a conversation about morality and questions about morality are swirling around all around us. I mean, what is is morality and what influences morality? morality. And so that's what part four of this series called Asking for a Friend is all about. But before we jump in, I want to talk a little bit about where we've been so far. If you're a guest this morning and you're new or you've just simply forgotten about what we've talked about so far. Here here are some of the things that we've been talking about. If God is our authority, will we submit to Him? And so are the decisions that we make, are the Um, The truths that we believe, are they influenced by the one who gets to define them? We talked about the topic of gender identity in part two, and we learned that our identity is, is our identity determined by our feelings. We learned that humanity cannot redesign God's perfect design, so will we submit to who God made us to be? God created mankind in His image with a plan and a design, and humanity cannot change His intended purpose for us, no matter how hard we may try or even society. And last week we covered the topic of relationships, and we asked this question, will we submit to God's design for relationships? That God's design for marriage is a man and a woman becoming one flesh. That God's design is for believers to marry believers, and that would also include who we would date. But God wants us to pursue purity in our relationships. God designed sexual intimacy to be between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And this whole series, it really, it boils down to authority, God's authority in our lives. So who is the ultimate authority in your life? I want you to think about that this morning as we talk about this topic of morality. And as we talked about in part one of this series, and if you haven't listened to it or heard it, go back and listen if you have time. Your authority could be from a, a couple of different places. Maybe it's your family. Or it's your politics, or maybe it's your friends, or it could just simply be you, yourself. What is right and wrong? And do we each get to define morality for ourselves? Then we have to think about these questions. If each of us get to be our own standard of right and wrong, then why do we think we can hold others to our standards? Can we have general general laws or hold people responsible for decisions that don't go against their individual moral compass? And when faced with important decisions, what influences our morality? And so, we can all be on the same page this morning. I want to give a definition of what morality means. And according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, morality is principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. So what is good and bad behavior? Whose principles? Who decides that? So I want you to think about this. If our morality comes from ourselves, how can we hold others to it? Let that settle in for just a minute. In this scenario, We're our own authority and setting our own standard for morality. So we have to let that settle in. You got to think about that. So imagine that you have a standard, an expectation that you've determined and set for yourself. It's a conviction that you can't compromise on. Let's say you feel that it would cross the line to, uh, we could shoplift. Okay, that's great, but... Can you hold others to that standard if we make up our own? Let's take it a step further. You feel that we should all determine our own morality. So if someone you love gets murdered, then are you going to expect that they are punished or held accountable for that action? But they didn't feel that it was morally wrong and it didn't cross their personal boundaries you see you can see how messy that this can get when morality is determined by the ever-changing humans that are around us it's all relative and it continues to change and who would expect someone else to be held to it So this morning, I want us to start somewhere that will seem a little bit out of place. Maybe if you're not used to being in church. If you're used to being in church, this will make a lot of sense. But if you would, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And for me, really, this is where it all begins and where it all ends. For Christians, we know that the Bible should be our source of authority. Because it provides an absolute standard for morality and for ethics. And so if you're there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but it says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And these are words that I think you should just underline if you haven't already. It is profitable. That means it has some value. It has, I believe it has all the value, but it, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness which is being trained to live the right way that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work so why start with the bible why why is it the ultimate standard for morality well if you think about if if you've read romans chapter 1 or romans chapter 2 we're told that god gave humans a conscience It's it's an inborn understanding of, of good things and evil things, but that conscience cannot be the ultimate guide for our morality. Without an absolute standard, morality would be a relative thing, and then it would vary based on each individual person. Humans did not develop morality. It flows from God and it flows from his actual nature. His standards are, they are unchanging because he is eternal and he is unchanging. And so he's our creator. He's the source of everything that is, that is true. And he has given us what we need to know about when it comes to things that are right and wrong. And he has given those to us in his guide that he has made available to us. And we call that the Bible. Now, most most Christians know what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4. It tells us that God's words are able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And that's why it is so important that we use God as our filter when it comes to issues of morality. I mean, who else or what else can do that for us? Even many secular writers acknowledge that the that the Bible is full of excellent moral teaching, yet ultimately they reject that it is inspired and that it's perfect. And lots of man-made thinking and ideas come uh, into play when they, uh, when they, to get them to that conclusion. And that's, that's a good point, because if, if the Bible was not God-inspired and 100% reliable, how could we trust anything That is written in it. I mean, whose idea and truth can we trust? Maybe you've, maybe you're here and you, you're just not sure about the Bible. Maybe from your point of view, the Bible is just an old book written by a bunch of dead guys who who are trying to, they're just trying to play tricks on you. But as we covered in a sermon uh, this summer, the Bible is a collection of historical documents, 66 books written over 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages. We have over 24,000 matching copies of the New Testament alone. Do you actually know how many copies we have of Homer's Liliad? Only 2,000. But no one questions the origin of that book today. We also have to keep in mind that none of the Bible contradicts itself, even the seeming contradictions. They all make sense in context. And all of it points back, and this is what I want you to hear this morning, all of it points back to a God who loves us and has been pursuing mankind from the beginning. So I want to encourage you to dig into this and see for yourself. And maybe even ask me for some resources if you would like to know A little bit more and whether or not you can trust the Bible. So if God is the only one who has been there since the beginning of time and since the Bible claims to be without error, if any part of it were false, then this whole thing, the whole book, would be irrelevant. Jesus even considered Scripture to be the ultimate standard for how we live. He said in John 17, 17 that your word is truth. And earlier in John 10, 35, he says that Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be undone. And so our main verses here from 2 Timothy 3, they reveal to us that all of the words of the Bible are truth from God, so they must be the foundation in every area. It says that the person of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. One of my favorite sections of the Bible is is Psalm chapter 119. The writer there, he he spends a ton of time explaining how to live a moral life, a righteous life, one that that pleases God. And so he says in Psalm 119 verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? He does that by guarding it according to his word. So the question that I ask myself often is, is have, have I or have you, I'll ask you, been guarding your way according to his word lately? Or are you relying on your own standard of truth? Verse 160 of Psalm 119 says, the entirety of, Of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endure forever. In verse 172, it says, My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. And so let's go back to our main question this morning. Why is the Bible the ultimate standard for morality? Well, if the Bible is, let's just say, if the Bible isn't the Christian's source for morality, then we have to ask, what should be? As Christ followers, our worldview is based off of a few things, right? So the first one is God exists. And second, God has spoken to us in and through the Bible. God has always made sure that we had the information that we needed to follow and his principles to follow. Adam and Eve were, they were given instructions in the Garden of Eden for how they were to live. The Ten Commandments were provided for the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai after they left captivity in Egypt. Jesus would later boil those commandments down to just two, which were love God and love your neighbor. Every single person has a flawed conscience because of the fall of man. In Genesis chapter 3, this is where sin, their storyline. And although we do have a sense of right and wrong, our sin nature, which we all have, it always gets in the way. And that is why we need God's words in the Bible to reveal what he says is right and what is wrong, and it is our guide in all things. God's plan for his people is revealed and it's preserved through the Bible and it is our source for morality. And you can look at 2 Timothy and 2 Peter to find those things. And this part is easy, that if we want to know God's will, we can find it in the Bible. If we want to know right from wrong, we can find it in the Bible. But, but, what happens if a Christian doesn't turn to the Bible as their source for morality? Well, we can see this playing all around us, playing out all around us every single day. It plays itself out in my life often. And we can we often, what we do is we, we, place, we place our trust in our conscience, or maybe it's in our experiences, or even our feelings. But, and, and our conscience can be a great thing. We know that. But here's the catch. Our conscience is only as good as the moral standard that informs it and educates it. I've used several, several articles, I've read so many articles about this topic of morality and, and this idea of, of maybe what you've heard called social consensus. And here's what social consensus is. It's when our morality is shaped and then changed by the culture around us. So if social consensus is our guide for decision-making, then we have built our morality on some, some pretty shaky grounds. Because things are always changing, right? I mean, they are always changing based on every idea of society. So if you take a look back in history, you'll see that there, there was a time in history when, when some things were not, were not widely accepted. Things like homosexuality and adultery and divorce, these types of things. But nowadays... Since culture has changed, those things have become much more normal to see. So what we have with this idea of social consensus is what we see happening to the Israelites just a couple of generations after they arrived in what the Bible calls the promised land. And in Judges chapter 17, it says, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God's people had abandoned him and in no time at all they were doing what was evil in his sight. You see that repeated often in the Old Testament. And this is the idea of social consensus in full swing. It's clearly what we see happening in some, in some scale or on some scale in our society today. And this should matter to all of us. Because on our own, Without God and His design for living and for morality, what we 're doing is we are drifting at sea like a ship without a rudder that 's probably some line or sentence from a bluegrass song that that 's out there. But we have been given everything that we need to live a godly life. Second peter one three says that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. Who called us by his own glory and goodness? The Bible is full of examples of people acting on their own authority and then making poor moral decisions. So, as I say that, who comes to your mind? I thought of several. I thought of the Israelites' decision to build and worship a golden calf. How stupid, by the way. If you worship golden calves, if I offended you, I'm sorry. Uh, Achan's decision to disobey and keeping back some treasure for himself. Or Eli's son's decision to take advantage of their position and power and exploiting women. Or maybe it was David's decision to commit adultery and then murder Uriah. Or Herod's decision to behead John the Baptist in order to appease his wife. Or Ananias and Sapphira's decision to lie to the apostles and to the Holy Spirit. Or maybe the rich young ruler comes to mind who he made the decision to choose his wealth over following Jesus. And in each of those scenarios, their decisions were being filtered by their morality. So turn to Ephesians chapter four if you still have a Bible there with you or your phone. I'm going to be reading this section of of Scripture from the New Living Translation. But if we're looking to find how God expects us to filter our decisions, I really think Ephesians 4 is one one of the best reminders that we have today. And so we're going to start with verse 17 here in Ephesians chapter 4. And it says this. It says, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer... As the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. So here's the challenge. Don't live like everyone else. I mean, this is a strong challenge, and it's a real simple one, because if, if, you, know, if you know much about the New Testament, then you know Paul was dealing with some major moral issues in these new churches that he was planting. And so Paul uses this term Gentiles on purpose, and he uses it to make a point. Kind of how we might use the word pagan or worldly in our culture. That most in the surrounding culture here, were following the very popular Greek goddess Artemis. And this god is still being worshipped in, in some parts of the world, even today. But there, there was a tension now. For the people here in Ephesus, these believers had entered into a new relationship with Christ, and they should now be walking with Christ. And so Paul is challenging them, and he is reminding them of how they should now be living their life. But in verses 18 through 19, we see something important. It says their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Now we know that, that unbelievers, people who don't follow Jesus, are separated from God because of their sin, but Paul takes it a step farther, and he tells them that their hearts have become hard. Another translation has Paul, uh, Paul using the language that they have become calloused. And this means that, that they weren't always calloused, that they, they were not born that way, but it is a result of a continual rejection of truth, as we're told in Romans chapter 1. Before becoming Christians, many in the Ephesian church had previously fit that dark description. They had become new now by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus to save them. So rather than rejecting the truth, they responded to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wonderful news in this passage is is that you can follow a different path. We can all follow a different path. We can make a different decision. And your life can be radically transformed by the person of Jesus Christ. The point is clear. We are new creations in Christ. Although we still live as a part of this world, we are called to think and we are called to act differently from what we see going on around us. But how? How do we do that? Well, the Bible uses language like taking off the old and putting on the new. And this is where it matters. In verse 22 of Ephesians 4, it says, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly, righteous and holy Christians must live differently because we are new people now that sounds super spiritual but living differently simply means putting away sin daily and continually and this is important and it has a major impact on our morals because it means that we have a new standard and a new perspective And so will you submit to God as the ultimate influence to your morality? You're a new person. So so make Christ the influencer in moral decisions. We need our minds to be renewed, like Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says. It says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the only way that we can experience this renewal in our lives is through the Bible and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's it's a work that God does in each and every one of us. Colossians 3, Paul repeats some of the same language, but he also mentions that we have some responsibility. That we must be a people who are setting our minds on what's above. That if we want to grow in our relationship with Jesus, we must pay attention to our minds. If If we want to live this new life that is found in Jesus, we must have renewed minds that have been influenced by the Bible. And then we think about the things that are true things that are good, things that are right. And that's the only way that we can live this new life, is to change our thinking. And so for every believer, we have come to know Jesus Christ. We have been made new. The old us is not who we are now. We have minds that that are being renewed. And this is what we get when we follow Jesus. And because of this change, we are empowered to live out this new identity in our lives on a daily basis. And all of this matters because it affects how we make decisions. So these words from Ephesians chapter 4 that we've read this morning are important because they remind us where the power comes from. Because it comes from our God. And as we think as we think about what God's Word has said to us, and what He said to us specifically this morning, where do you need to focus your mind, and what do you need to work on today? Are you living like the world? Are you living like a world that doesn't know Christ? Does your life, does it look like theirs? Do your morals look like theirs? Is your morality, is it, is it based off of the old self or the new self? And so we have to pause for a moment when we ask questions like that. And I want you to think of your life and your morals before Christ, before you were made new. And I'd be willing to bet that you have already spent years recognizing what needs to change, and putting into practice what it means to follow Christ. And for some of you, the picture of the old you may not be very impactful. Maybe you got saved as as a young person like I did, or maybe you were raised in a decent, principled environment where lots of focus was put on your behavior or your appearance, and you didn't have, you know, a stockpile of regret behind you. But we can all place ourselves in the same category of having an old life and a new life when we remember just how truly awful our sin is in God's sight and even even our seemingly small sins. Jesus is always the example. He is truth, and he has recreated those who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus alone for their salvation. So Jesus is the standard for morality because he is truth, and we have to remember this simple truth. We have to ask ourselves this question often. If our morality comes from ourselves, how can we hold others to it? And here's something to think about. Are the sins of your past a time when you were not guided by God's standard of morality? Are they still keeping you from embracing this new life that Jesus has offered you? The scriptures are clear that we have a very real enemy, and he is a deceiver. He is not neutral. He is not distracted with the cares of this world, even the good things like we can be. He has nothing else to do. The Bible says that he is simply, constantly prowling around like a lion, and he is seeking to devour you and me. And anytime you think it's better to put the old self back on again, you better believe that those thoughts and those feelings They are not coming from Jesus or the Spirit's work in you. If you're a Christian in the room, you have to remember, and you have to remember every single day that you have been made new, and your morality should be influenced by that, by the new. Your morality should reflect the new things. And so as Christians, we must put off the old self, the things that are influenced and defined by the world's system, by social consensus, and we must lean into Christ and pursue him in every single decision. We must lean into Christ. And this is a major distinction from what we see happening all around us. But this is something radical that we're doing. Because we're going against the culture, and we're following a moral guideline that's designed by the one who created us. And our enemy, God's enemy, and a lot of our culture and a lot of our society are against God's moral standards. But we can follow his principles, and we can reflect him with our decisions. And so my encouragement this morning is simple— Ask God to show you any needed changes and then make those changes this week. Have you been made new? Then you have the ability to do that. If you have been made new, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, Jesus has changed you, then you can choose to live a life that honors and pleases our Savior because He has given us the guide and everything that we need to live a godly life. And so will you submit to his standard of morality? It's a decision that you have to make every day. I have to make it every single day. Will you do that? The other question that I have is, have you been made new? Because not everyone can answer that question with a yes. And maybe there's someone in the room this morning, maybe you're a guest, maybe you're visiting, maybe you you haven't been to church since you were a little kid, maybe you've never been to church. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Because it's only in following Jesus that, that life changes, and it changes for the better. So this morning I want you to hear something that maybe you've never heard before, and that's that God loves you. And he loves you more than any person who has ever said that they loved you. And he loves you so much that he came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life. And this word that we keep talking about this morning, this word called sin that, we, that, that, is, that riddles all of us, he never sinned. And he did that so that he could go to the cross and he could pay the price for your sin as the spotless Lamb of God. And Jesus Christ lives this life. He lives 33 years here on this earth. And he doesn't sin, not one single time. And he lives a life that promotes what this thing is called salvation, that, that he is the only way, that, that he, because his, of his sinless life, his sinless nature, his perfection, he was now positioned to make payment for your sin. And so Jesus Christ comes, he lives a sinless life, and he is crucified, and he is crucified. He is killed on the cross of Calvary to pay the price for our sin. And you can see this in the Bible. You can read this in the New Testament. Josephus wrote about this in historical documents. But Jesus lived this life that we couldn't live, and he paid the price for our sin. He died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. The Bible and history recounts that Jesus rose from the dead three days after being crucified and it's a symbol, it's a picture of him conquering sin, death, and the grave. And what the Bible tells us is that because of our sin, we are separated from this God. And the penalty for our sin is, is death, one, but also eternal separation in a place called hell forever. Forever. And this place was created for Satan and his demons. But when Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden, sin entered the human race. And so we are all born with this sin nature. And we will all, we have all chosen to sin. And as I shared just a moment ago, the good news is Jesus paid for that sin. There's a video that I watch in, in one of the lines in the video. It says that Jesus wrote a check with his life and the check cleared <laughs> And I love that statement because it communicates that the only way for you to experience life, eternal life, and hope of this place called heaven that everyone thinks they're going to if they've been a good person, is only possible through the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus can be saved. It's really simple. You have to deal with some things inside of you. Maybe you think that you are a really bad person, and maybe you are a really bad person. But who gets to define what a really bad person is today? Only God does. And there there is no scale of sin. You could be a murderer, or you could be a person who lusts this morning. The sin is the same. And Jesus died for that. he says that everyone who calls on his name can be saved. And what that simply means is that you just humble yourself. You acknowledge and you realize that I am a sinner. And you understand that your sin and the penalty for it is death and separation from God forever in a place called hell. But it's also you realizing that you can choose a different path today. And you can call on Jesus to save you. You can simply say right where you are, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. Save me from my sins. And you can do that this morning. If everyone would, just bow your heads and just close your eyes because I want to have a a moment with, with anyone who may not have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. Have you called on Jesus to save you. Not did you go to VBS, not was your grandma a good Christian, not did you grow up or did you go through confirmation, not were you sprinkled as a baby, but have you put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you? And if you're here this morning and you have never done that, I want to encourage you to do that right now. And you could simply say what I said earlier. God, I know that I am a sinner and I believe that Jesus died for my sin and I am calling on you to save me. And you can do that right there. And maybe that was you this morning. If you're here and you made that decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus as nobody's looking around, would you just let me know by raising your hand so I can see you that you put your faith and trust in Jesus? And maybe you're here this morning and you have some questions. We have some lovely people that will be over here to my left, to your right, at the end of the service. And if you have some questions about who Jesus is and what he did for you, I want to encourage you to have that conversation this morning. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful and thankful for the opportunity that we've had to gather together today. God, we, uh, we're so thankful for the person of Jesus Christ who... Set the example for each and every one of us. And so God, I pray that as we strive to live this life as your followers, that your word, that your heart, that your spirit would be the one thing that is influencing each and every one of us. God, help us to live differently because of you. And God, if there's anyone in this room today that does not have that personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. They know who they are. God, I pray that you would convict them and that you, would, that you would help them see their need for a savior, that they would be saved today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.